Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mandel, joined as always by Chris Bugay. Hey, Chris, how are you? Oh, I'm so good, Rachel. How are you? I'm great. What you got for me this week? Well, as you know, things are ramping up in, um, in the world of presenting. You know, I think you and I have both uh, been contacted by a number of organizations. We've got conferences coming up. That is all starting to fill up the calendar, right? I mean, am I, am I speaking uh, your truth here right now? My calendar is so full that I have to say no to people. <laughs> I'm like, I'm booked out till February. <laughs> booked out like as far as we can be. I know, I know. So, and people have realized that we have some experience here now uh, doing presentations. And so someone sent me an email and they had some questions about presenting. So this is someone that is sort of just starting on their presentation journey. They've um, just uh, started doing some presentations and they had some questions. So I thought, um, um, I answered this person already like in an email, but I thought, well, let's get Rachel's take on this and we'll just have a, we'll, we'll have a discussion about it, right? Great. So this person says, I'd like to move forward to apply for more speaking gigs at conferences and other private organizations. I've done some professional learning about how to be a good presenter, but I wondered if you have any tips, ideas, on how I could be a more efficient communicator in a conference setting or in a presentation-style setting. Um, this person would like to focus on AAC and inclusion. Um, it seems like some of the conferences they've attended, the the focus is not towards um, parents and it's not towards necessarily school-aged users and they'd like to tell more stories about parents and school-aged users. Um, and so what kind of advice might we give this person, you know? Uh, and I feel like this is relevant to the audience because I feel like people who listen, they go out and they are AAC activists themselves. They do presentations. So what kind of advice? And I know we've talked about this topic before, but since it's ramping up again, uh, what sort of advice might we give? What, what are some some initial thoughts that pop off in your head there? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's kind of a loaded question, right? And makes me think about like, hmm, what does make a good presentation? You know, we've talked about this before, Chris, but, you know, the interaction piece is really important, um, whether that's, you know, on a webinar, you know, through the chat, or I love our Talking With Tech Live events, Chris, because, you know, typically people will turn their microphones on and their cameras and it's more of a discussion. Um, you know, of course, in person, you have the ability to do, you know, group exercises and things like that. But I think that that interaction piece is so important because, you know, we have a podcast, we talk about all these concepts, you can, you can listen to these episodes for free and get the same information. Um, but what, what, what's different about, you know, a conference or some type of event live is that you have the ability to interact with one another. So I feel like that has to be the focal point. Um, and those are the most engaging presentations. Rachel, I, you, of course, I could not agree more especially in today's day and age, we are living in a pandemic. People are, if they're going to be in person with you, they're literally risking their safety to be in that room with you. Think of it as the, the gravitas that that carries, let alone the time they're spending, the money they're spending. If they are flying someplace or driving someplace, staying in a hotel room to go and see you just talk to them for an hour, you're doing it wrong. I don't know how to be any any more clear about that. People can have, you can make a YouTube video really inexpensively, create a whole platform for yourself where people can, can you can convey that message in, a, in an asynchronous format where people can watch that video and you can talk to them about it. There has to be, you have to put on a hat of designing an experience for people where it is interactive, where they're, they're going, man, I could not have done that or it would not have been as awesome as if I... It, if I did that virtually or if I did that um, asynchronously. What's the power of people being in a room together if you're presenting is the experience that you can bring together with those people. So to me, that means asking more questions, playing more games, having reflective moments where people uh, interact with each other. It means building things together. Doing those sorts of experiences are something that is just so much more difficult to do virtually. So I could not agree more. Make it worth that people's time and that effort and that travel time. The other thing that kind of piggybacks off that is this idea of showing instead of telling. So I think that could be in a variety of ways. Um, you know, I love using videos in my presentations as a way to show what I'm talking about. Um, I think that, you know, oftentimes we hear people talk a lot about these concepts and, 
you know, one short 20 second video clip can demonstrate uh, something so simple and can make a huge impact for people in understanding exactly what it looks like. Um, you know, and that's not always the easiest thing to do, right? Because you have to get permissions and all these things in order to take video and share video. And um, But you'd be surprised how willing families are um, when you ask, can I use this for educational purposes? I'm you know, presenting at a conference. Um, would you be okay with me using this clip? It's just, it really does make a huge difference. And I really think that that can make a presentation really stand out. So I literally wrote that to this person back. I, I said, fight the urge to play videos unless they are short, less than one minute long, and you're stopping and pausing and looking for a very specific thing. Watch what I do here or watch what this person says here so that, so that you're getting that show me rather than tell me experience. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That is another thing that sort of um, I think about when I look at presentations. I, I look at them and I go why would I sign up to watch a video? Why would I travel to watch a video when I can do that from my home, right? So uh, I, this, these minutes that I'm spending together needs to be interactive. So keep them short. Keep them very short to make that very poignant point. I think another thing that I always think about is how do we strike a balance with giving enough information, but not, but doing it in a way that doesn't overwhelm. Um, so we've all been in the presentations where it's like, wow, like there's a lot of information here, and you know it's presented in a way that maybe isn't as easy to digest and feels like, oh my god, like. I went into this presentation thinking I was going to learn, and now I realize how much I have to learn, and I feel like defeated. Um, and so I think that that is something that I'm always, you know, considering when I'm thinking about what I am sharing and how I'm sharing it. I think there's a way to share information in a bite-sized way that is really easy for people to digest. And um, you can do that so that people walk away with like a clear vision as to like what they can do tomorrow to start implementing some of the things that they've learned. Um, and so I think thinking about that as a presenter, you, you think about the way you're organizing information, um, you know, some of the takeaway messages that you want people to leave with, what are the action steps you want people to have in order to start you know, implementing the things that you talked about. Um, I think you can be really thoughtful as a presenter and organizing information in that way. Um, um, and structuring it so that people have a really clear takeaway and something to do. Rachel, did you hack my email? Did you, are you, you You are, right? You learned some sort of new hacking coding skill that I, uh, since the last time I talked, because again, it seemed like you you read my email response to this person. I literally said, what are the big points you want them to walk away with? Less is more. So many people want to cram it all in, fight the urge, tell them one more, fight the urge to tell them one more thing and instead invite them to do something with the thing you've already experienced. Um, Ask them to create an action plan or a to-do list. Like, what is that next step? Wow, it's like it's like we talk every week and we're in each other's heads. It's like we know each other, Chris. <laughs> no, I completely, um, I completely agree. I mean, I think part of the reason you and I present so well together is because we have very similar presentation styles and we prioritize similar things. Um, and I just think that you know we have such an opportunity when we're in front of an audience to really you know educate, but also to inspire. I think that one. Of of my main goals, you know, whenever I'm presenting is how can I inspire this group that change is possible and that we can start making small steps towards that change. Um, again, AAC is such an overwhelming, daunting subject for many clinicians, many educators, many parents. Um, how can we make it just seem a little bit easier to get going? Um, and it starts with not like overwhelming with so many, you know, things at once. Um, I feel like it's, it's something that is hard because we're so passionate. Like a lot of the listeners listening to this podcast, they're so passionate about AAC. They want to share all the things all at once, um, myself included. But we need to really be careful about overwhelming our audience with too many things at once. Um, and I think it makes sense to do more of a deeper dive in some of the concepts that you're teaching, showing, illustrating, sharing stories, all those things with one concept versus, you know, just like overloading with so many concepts all at once and just touching the surface. And you keep mentioning overload. That is 100% true. And on top of that, people just won't remember. Like they, they just won't. They're, especially at a conference where they're going maybe from session to session and they're trying to, they're taking notes on all sorts of stuff. That old adage is true. People will remember how you made them feel more than the content that you shared. So make them feel empowered, not overwhelmed. Make them feel like it's a, they can do it, uh, not like it's such a mountain they have to climb. Uh, and again, that comes back to, 
keeping it short, keeping it poignant, um, brevity is your friend. Uh, those sorts of powerful messages are what will inspire people. I think that's what has worked for us in, in, in past presentations and why we get hired to do uh, other presentations and get approached to do other conferences and things is because um, we've maybe made those mistakes. I know I certainly have. I've tried to cram too much in and have, have I've learned to not do that, you know. Um, that veteran status is because of the experiences of, of failing in the past, you know. 100%. I feel like we've all, when we start anything, right, we kind of learn as we go and change and adapt as we go. And um, I remember in the initial stages of starting to do presentations, it, it's a learning curve, trying to figure out what sticks and what doesn't. And, you know, it kind of evolves over time. Um, I will say one thing that I feel like I've gotten a lot better at that I always kind of aspired to do, but it was harder in the initial stages, um, was not like reading off my slides. I just like, there's such a, I have such a pet peeve for like people who read the slides. I'm like, I can read your slides. <laughs> I need more than your slides. Um, I also like don't really like when the slides are overwhelmed with text because it's just like I need key points here um, that you talk through with me. Um, and again, like when I first started out, like wasn't as easy for me as it is now. I mean, we have a podcast where we talk about these concepts every you know every week. I'm talking about them every day with you know clients that I'm coaching and you know teams that I'm on. But I think that um, I used to feel like, oh, like I'm not gonna say it perfectly. So I need to rely on like, you know, my script, right? Like all the things I wanna say. And I think what I've realized is that, you know, we present the same talk, Chris, and we present it different every single time because sometimes like this story pops into my mind or someone asks a question or makes a comment in the chat that then takes my brain somewhere. And again, I feel like that's the benefit of live presentations is like you have the opportunity to, you know, shift the conversation or share something that you've never shared before. Um, but I think you have to feel confident in just kind of trusting the process and just knowing that like if a question comes up or something goes a different way, like you can kind of adapt and be flexible um, and just go with it. Two other points that go right along with that is no one expects you to know it all. So it's okay to say, I don't know when people ask you questions and also realize everyone participating is on your side. It's very rare that you get some sort of heckler or someone who's out to get you, you know, they're, they're, they're there to learn. They want to, they want to uh, hear the stories and they want you to succeed. They want to have a good presentation as well. That, that relationship, it, it goes both ways. So ask reflective questions. If you don't know, I don't know, you've got a whole room of people there. So let's ask, does anyone have experience with this? It's sort of like what we do with talking with Tech Live is that it's not this expectation that you and I know it all. It's the room has uh, this, all these people have experiences um, and ha have some, maybe some greater knowledge or more depth of knowledge or experience than we do in a particular subject. So let's let's throw it out to everybody. 100%. Yeah, I always feel confident in reaching out to the to the audience to see if they have anything con to contribute because we can't know it all, right? We ha And we have to be honest and open about that. Now, speaking about great presenters, I have to say that there was a session at AAC in the Cloud that I went to all about stimming. And the person who did that session was amazing. I loved it. Remember, I was in the chat and I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is great. I think you were there. So I would really love to have that person on the podcast sometime because that person, I mean, oof. Nailed it. Totally nailed it. Go back and watch that at AAC in the cloud. Maybe we can get them on a future episode or something. What do you think, Rachel? Guess what, Chris? I've already done it. Laura Hayes is here today to talk all about stimming. Um, she, like I said, like you said, we saw her at AAC in the cloud. I thought her presentation was so well done. I thought it was such an area of need in our field to start looking at stimming in a different way. Um, and so our episode today is all about talking with Lara about her practice and her ideas in regards to stimming. I love the way she breaks down um, stimming into different categories and it's super informative and it will definitely change your perspective on um, what you thought you knew about stimming. So I'm super excited to head into my interview today with Lara Hayes. Great news, everybody. We're going to be presenting a pre-conference workshop for Closing the Gap called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. This six-hour virtual workshop takes place over two days, October 7th and 8th, from 1 to 4 p.m. Central Time on each day. 
This interactive workshop explores strategies for teaching students of all ages language by engineering environments so all communicators have opportunities for rich, meaningful practice in the context of everyday routines. Participants will get to explore how to design experiences using interactive technologies, which empower the student and their support network, putting them on the path to achieve their lifelong language goals. During the workshop, we're going to take an in-depth look at building the skills of communication partners through structured training centered on both consulting and coaching. We'll be sharing the latest tools and strategies for establishing a culture of language learning using AAC. Everybody loves engaging tools. You can sign up now by going to bit.ly slash design AAC. That's bit.ly slash design AAC. Can't wait to see you guys there. Oh, and there's one more thing to mention, Rachel. What's that, Chris? I'm actually doing two pre-conferences on those days. I'll be presenting with the other authors of the new Inclusive Learning 365 book as well. The title of that pre-conference is Inclusive Learning 365, Breaking Down Barriers and Creating a Culture of Inclusivity by Design. That pre-conference is also on October 7th and October 8th, 2021, but it will be at 9 to 12 Central Time on those days. If you'd like to learn more about how to redesign educational experiences through an inclusive lens, then you can register for that pre-conference by going to bit.ly slash inclusivectg. That's bit.ly slash inclusivectg. Come spend the whole day with me. See you there. Welcome to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mado, joined today by Laura Hayes. Laura, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am so excited to have you here. I heard your presentation at AAC in the Cloud, and I was like, I have to have her on to talk about all the things that she presented in this presentation. Um, so anyway, before we dive in, start off by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what, who you are and what you do. So my name is Laura Hayes. I My trade is an SLP. I've been doing it for, I don't want to date myself too much, but about 12 years. <laughs> and I've got a background in both hospital pediatric care, as well as a school-based facilitate, facilitator role um, care in, in the school setting. And um, I kind of I fell into the world of AAC a little bit by accident because my when I first came out of grad school, my passion was the population of autism. Like that is what I wanted to do. That is where I felt like my niche was, you know, and actually backing up a little bit, uh, I started, I, I would even say I started my role in AAC and in, in SLP when my sister was born. So my sister actually has a disability and has complex communication needs. And so I was constantly just involved with her care at the hospital, involved with translating for her. And so then in grad school or in an undergrad, when I realized that I, I kind of wanted to do that, I looked into the speech pathology program and the rest is kind of history. So started to, to kind of work with, with autistic patients and just their families. And they have a lot of complex communication needs. Thus, AAC was born. Um, I learned what not to do, as I always tell people, <laughs> like we learned what we shouldn't do. Totally, totally. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so, so now I work for a large school district and I'm a facilitator and I support staff and development and trying to uh, help them understand how to best facilitate AAC. I love that. And I think it's so important. Like, I feel like we all kind of like, we remember the, the moments where we learned what not to do, <laughs> like the things that we were doing that were like, oh no, <laughs> that's not good. Crap. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that you're saying that. Um, okay. So Laura, I brought you on today because of your fantastic AAC in the cloud presentation. It was all about stimming. Um, so I wanted to kind of do a deep dive today. Um, I thought you had so many really great points um, that you made in that presentation. And by the way, for anyone who's listening, AAC in the cloud is completely free AAC conference that happens every year. You can literally Google Laura Hayes' name and find the presentation that I'm talking about, along with many, many other amazing presentations. Um, I'd highly recommend going and checking those out um, because, you know, AAC in the cloud has like the best, the top presenters in AAC um, all come together every summer. So anyway... Tell me a little bit about, I'm curious, like the behind the scenes, like how was that presentation born? Because um, the first thing I read, I was like, oh my God, what a great topic to even talk about. 
Yeah. So I, you know, they say wisdom begins with wonder. So I think Socrates said that. And so I, where my role is now in, in the school districts as a facilitator is I kind of hear a lot of things. And so my wondering start to kind of, as far as research and education and, and what I need to, to provide my staff. And something I heard quite frequently, I think I mentioned this in the presentation, is this idea of that device isn't working. They just stim on it. They just stim on it. They just stim on it. It's not working. Let's change devices. Let's um, let's abandon the device. Like I kept hearing that. And so as I mentioned in the presentation, I kind of get on a soapbox. I'm like, well, what does that really mean? What is what is stimming? Um, and so what I was finding over the course of, of years of working with staff and in, in autistic individuals is the fact that stimming means different things for different people when it comes to devices. Um, stimming by definition is a neurotypical pattern of behavior that is recycled over and over again um, to fill a sensory need. And when it comes to devices, that can be the case, but it can also look different. And so the presentation explores what stimming can look like on a device. And so there's four different areas that I found when someone says they're stimming on a device, they really mean one of those four things. Let's break it down. What are the four things? I'm so, so intrigued. <laughs> I'm like, it was a while since AC and the call. Like, rem I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember your four buckets. Right. So the first one is this idea of babbling and exploration. The second being more of an exploratory perseveration on different icons. And then the third is looking at that true self-regulation of, of hearing auditory or perhaps visual or tactile components of the device. The fourth being scripting and echolalia that could be meaningful or non-interactive. Yeah, I think it's really good to kind of think about these categories because I think what happens is we just kind of lump it all together. And if we're thinking about, you know, what are we going to do and how are we going to approach this? I think we really do need to get specific about what is the function behind whatever, you know, behavior we see um, when it comes to the device. Um, and so I like those buckets. Is there one that you feel like, you know, you see more often than another? I think that, I think that you can see all of them when you really look and you analyze language samples and you, and you observe the student, you can see all of them in the same session. Um, so you have to be really, cognizant and careful when you're when you're looking at what could it be um, you could have the same word and it could hit all four areas for one student so that's why it's important to kind of consider the student and and the intent behind it they say that you know echolalia and and stimming and this perseveratory behaviors it's it's not so much what they're saying it's it's the intent behind it we're always as a smart communication partner trying to figure out what do they really mean so i I say for certain students, I will see that at the beginning stages, a lot of babbling and exploration. And I think even in, on AAC for the SLP and some of um, some of our groups that we have really smart people that are following um, stimming behavior. And so sometimes we just lump them in and say, oh, they're just babbling. So just keep going. But if you really look at the student, they may not be babbling. They may be doing some one of the other buckets. And so the response to what they're doing should shape what we're doing to help facilitate more meaningful communication. I think it's a really good point because I think what happens like to kind of counteract this like notion that like, oh, well, they're not using it functionally and they're just stimming. Then we kind of go, the, we swing the, the, the opposite direction and we're like, no, they're babbling. But it could be that they like the auditory output, right? And like, like they like the repetition of that. So it could be that they are indeed, you know, stimming with that purpose of hearing the same word over and over again. They like that. Um, and so I think it is interesting. That's a good point that you bring up that we kind of like go the opposite way and lump it all in one, you know, bucket of like, well, no, they're babbling. Um, it is really interesting to think about and to get really clear on what is happening. And it can change, it sounds like from, you know, student to student, just depending on, you know, a variety of factors, I'm sure. Um, I like just to share uh, the story. So I was working with a student probably like five years ago at this point. It was a while ago. Um, student was five years old, um, not speaking. We decided to introduce a device. Lamp was the device of choice. And this was like a huge problem. It was like, oh, she's not using it. She just hits the buttons randomly. And, and <clears throat> I'd say over the course of like probably like four to five weeks, she just kept like 
just hitting all the buttons all the time, every button. It felt like she hit every button. And what happened was she actually like learned the location of every single button on her device. So that was her way of like, you know, finding every single word. And so we would say like a word, you know, like Apple or, you know, whatever. It didn't even matter any word that was on that device. We would say it and she would be able to find it. And it was crazy to think about like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she just, this five-year-old just taught herself how to find every single word on the device. But she wasn't using language functionally and she wasn't communicating, you know, with intention. And so the, the moral of the story here is one, I mean, we don't know what a child is, you know, kind of doing when they're hitting the buttons and listening to the, you know, words and all those things. It could be that they're teaching themselves where these buttons are and they like, you know, learning where these words are. Um, but I think the bigger message here is that, you know, a child can know where every single button is on the device, but if we don't have aided language input and modeling to show children how their words have power and how to, to use those words in meaningful opportunities, then, you know, you know, we're never going to see language, you know, come out of a child. Um, and so I think that it's just like a story that I like to share because um, she knew where every single word was on the device, but she didn't understand how to use any of those words in meaningful ways. Right. It's all about language through context, right? We learn language through context, no matter what the language is, right? We, we always talk about going to a foreign country, like you're going to explore language and you're going to explore what different cadence and what different intonation gets you with words. And you're going to, you know, I went <laughs> way back when I was um, in grad school, I went to Spain and I knew enough Spanish to get along. And I said the same phrase over and over again, um, and I was trying to get to the train station. I was asking for directions. And I said, donde esta el metro? And I said it seven different times. So in theory, right, you're like, okay, well, she's saying it. She's saying it. Maybe maybe she's not using it functionally. This person looked at me like I had three heads. It was because I wasn't trilling that R, that TR in the word metro. So finally, I got up the gumption and I tried it and I said it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is the way you go. So I always use that example because it, it's language through context and it's, and it's these experiences that shape it. So that was my little corrective feedback. We have to be giving the same corrective feedback. So somebody that may know the word Apple, what does Apple really mean? Or what does go really mean? You've learned that over the course of context. And that in that babbling stage, that exploration stage, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be shaping it. One of the pitfalls that I see often is that and it's a great feature, so I'm not going to knock the feature, but we turn on Vocabulary Builder or we hide a bunch of icons depending upon the system, and then we keep them there. And we say, this is the level that they're at. Or even worse, we, we say that they're stimming and that we give them a big, a big Mac. And we say, well, this is the level that they're at. This is where we need to start. And my rule of thumb is always, if you would say the word to the individual, the child, whoever you're working with, it needs to be visible on the device. So Vocabulary Builder is meant to be a temporary tool to decrease the visual uh, complexity of the screen. And once you have the motor plan, you can build it back up. And oftentimes we get stuck there. Yeah, we don't build it back up. <clears throat> I feel like that's, it's always a balancing act, thinking about how much vocabulary to include and what to mask and all those things. Um, you know, it's, it is a delicate dance because and I always talk about how it's like, it's more so the adults, like the adults are the ones that are holding up the process uh, because the adults are like, oh my God, like, I don't know where the buttons are, <laughs> you know? And it's like, the child is totally fine, but like the adults feel overwhelmed, which is a problem in and of itself, right? Because going back to my example, like that little girl that I was working with needed the adults around her to model language. And, you know, if the full version of LAMP, like, made them not touch the device, then, you know, we need to do something about it. Um, but I agree, Laura, I feel like people get stuck. Um, and even worse, they like have this, like a child has to reach like certain criterion with certain vocabulary that's visible before we'll add anything else, which I just like completely don't agree with at all. Um, so anyway, I, I think that that's a really important reminder for everyone is like, we don't want to get stuck, um, like always be aiming for more words. And if you do initially start off with masking some vocabulary, you should make an intention to constantly be adding vocabulary every single week um, so that children have exposure and access to all, all the words on their device. Yeah. And, you know, um, someone way smarter than me once said that AAC is the only language where a user is meant to use it without full immersion. So when you think about that, like it is so important that the communication partner understand the system and be building the capacity for their own skills to learn where vocabulary is, add vocabulary um, so that they can receptively expose and help 
the user that's learning it in the same regard. Totally. It's like, it's dual learning, right? It's like communication partners are learning and the child's learning at the same time. And I mean, a lot of the work that I do in my practice is like training communication partners. It's like, I don't see kids anymore. I mean, I do see kids, but it's just like a lot of what I'm doing is train like adult learning, right? It's like, how do I get these adults to do the things that I need them to do and to learn the skills that they need to have to be the best communication partners possible? Go ahead. <laughs> so the, you know, so that, that kind of goes over the, the exploratory um, behavior or babbling as we like to call it in the AAC world. But then we also, I was also finding that staff were telling me that they were pulling the device away because they would just stim on it in a non-functional way. They would explore the device, but it didn't really have any meaning. It wasn't applicable to the the activity that they were doing. And it just, honestly, they would say things like it was disruptive to the class. So I would hear that over and over again. And some staff would tell them that the word wasn't available or they would just ignore it um, or they would even remove the icon, that specific icon from the device. Um, so shaping that, what we, what we talk about a lot is how we can redesign the activity and or provide specific, very specific feedback, preferably with visuals and aided language input and all those great things. Um, so that was another area that, you know, I kind of dove into because we have these students, like I had a student one time who was using P2Go and loved, like loved candy, just loved, loved candy, could eat candy all day long. Who, who wouldn't, right? We all could. Me too, me too. <laughs> and so they took off the, they added the behavior of not repeating a word. So smart little guy that he was started saying a different word and coming back to the word candy because that got him the candy. That was what he wanted. The intent is still the same. So we have to be really careful about, well, if, if we're just redesigning the technology, we're not really shaping the, the language understanding and building that capacity. So, yeah. And I think that's a really uh, interesting point. Um, so when you say sh changing the behavior, you mean on the device. So like you can change the interaction settings on the device so that if you hit the button twice, it doesn't activate the second time. Um, and you're exactly right. I've done this with kids and like they figure it out. They're like, I'll just hit the message window and then I can hit it again. <laughs> you know, like they're so smart. Um, and like you said, the, the intent behind it is still the same. Um, and so we need to figure out ways to kind of expand. Um, the other thing that I like that you said um, is how can we shape what we're doing based off of what they're saying. So like, for example, I had a child who was obsessed with trash trucks every time, like, and we had no idea. We're like, what is he talking about? Like trash trucks? Like, and we don't know. That's the thing is like, he could have like saw a trash truck this morning and like was super excited because he loves trucks and he saw a trash truck and he wanted to talk about it. Right. We don't know. And that's part of the challenge, right? Is that we don't know what's in a child's head. And that's what our job is, is to figure out how can we take whatever is in your head and teach you how to communicate it to us so that we understand and we can pick up that message that you're putting down. Um, but anyway, so it felt random. Trash truck felt super random. So what we did was, okay, well, let's build a lesson around trash trucks. Like, let's teach a kid about trash trucks. Like, let's do a whole lesson about trash trucks. And it was, not only was it super functional, but it was super exciting and motivating for the child. And now all of a sudden what he, what everyone was like, Oh, it feels like stimming. It doesn't feel functional. Um, all of a sudden we were able to shape it into something that was really functional. And all of a sudden he's saying trash truck. And we're like, yes, it is a trash truck. Cause we're looking at a trash truck PowerPoint, you know? So I feel like it's a perfect example of how we can really shape what we're doing as clinicians based off of what children are showing us that they're interested in talking about. Even if it feels random, like we can teach about it, you know? Yeah, we talk about the same thing. I had um, a high school kiddo and he loved to talk about chicken nuggets and presuming potential. He was a food motivated kid. I'm like, he probably wants it to be lunchtime. But if we're going to talk about chicken nuggets, if we've already redirected, let's create a lesson around chicken nuggets. We can put that in PowerPoint. We can count chicken nuggets in math. We can, you know, do experiments with chicken nuggets or something that could be like clay that you could mold into a chicken nugget, whatever it is, you can get creative. Um, and that is exactly what happened. So we did that and we saw that that not only was he able to start to meaningfully say chicken nuggets, the stimming quote unquote decreased because he then understood the function and the meaning behind the content of the word he was using. 
Exactly. I also, since we're talking about this, let me just get on my soapbox for a second. <laughs> this is a platform where I, have, I get on a soapbox a lot um, on my, my own podcast, but <laughs> I feel like it makes me so frustrated when people say, oh, they're stimming. They're not using the device functionally. And they like kind of lump in stimming with like not functional because it actually serves a very important function for autistic individuals. And so every time I hear that, I'm like, they like, for whatever reason, if that child needs to keep saying trash truck over and over again, and perhaps it's the auditory piece that they like, or who knows, whatever, it's just like, they're doing it for a reason and it's regulating them in some way or they're enjoying it or, you know, and so it's just like, I hate when people just lump it in with like, oh, it's so not functional and it's so disruptive. And, and I get that, you know, in classrooms, having a child say trash truck over and over again, you know, all day long, like that can be disruptive, but it's like, how, what are we going to do with that language that a child's showing us and how are we going to shape it? I think is the way we should be approaching it instead of just trying to like extinguish all of this behavior. Yes. So that third component of that whole idea of using it for self-regulation, like you said, it serves a purpose. So how can you shape that instead of just removing the device, saying that the device is unfunctional or even worse, detrimental to the environment, um, or even some people will force communication or, or say like, you must communicate, this is the tool. And then it of course becomes a verse, which should be a surprise to no one. And so how can you really shape those instances you know, we, we have many, many, I'm sure you do too. We have many OT friends <laughs> that can give us lots of sensory ideas, lots of other ways that we can help that feed that sensory regulation, which is so important. Um, because again, if you remove the device, which some people want to do, the need isn't met. So they're going to search it out other ways. So they're going to find another way to get that need met. And it could be equally, if not more disruptive. Um, so can we, can we provide times to help, you know, where they can, whether they're wearing headphones, whether they're wearing uh, or whether they go to a corner, whether they have their own time to, to try to fit that sensory regulation piece in using the device. That's where we like to start. Um, how can we even teaching um, one of the one of the best strategies I've heard with this specific component is teaching whisper mode. Have you, have you heard yes. this? I love this idea of whisper mode because you're teaching them two things. You're teaching that uh, the, the social construct of like, we need to whisper because that's what somebody who would be verbal would be doing, right? Okay. You're too loud. Like, let's use your whisper voice. Um, it's so, it's, it's such a simple thing that, that we can add as a goal that we can really teach them operationally. Like this is something you need to do with your device when you're in a busy environment. I literally just worked with a family yesterday, um, a school team yesterday that a family and a school team, I saw them both yesterday separately um, about this. And like, it was like, we were in the library and he kept saying, I forget what it was, but it was like over and over again, the same word. And like, it was a quiet environment. And I'm like, we need to teach him what it means to be quiet. Cause we oftentimes use language like that for kids. And we don't you know, check to make sure that there's comprehension. Like, what does it mean to be quiet? What does it mean to be loud? Um, and so you can very easily do those things. I love to use YouTube videos because they're really motivating. So like, I'll put the YouTube video on with the, like the volume all the way down and like kids are really excited and they're like, what? Like, I don't hear anything. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, it's too quiet. I need to turn the volume up, right? Or like conversely, it's so loud. Like I need to turn the volume down um, because like you said, it's an operational AAC skill. Um, and I find that oftentimes as adults working with kids who use AAC, we're just kind of taking the device and doing those things for them. We're like, oh, like we're in the library. Like I need to turn the volume down instead of having the user, the student, like start understanding what that looks like. Like you turn the volume down, like your device is too loud. Like we're in a quiet place. Like we need to be quiet. Right. Um, and so I think those are really great learning opportunities for kids to practice some of those operational AAC skills. Yeah. And I always, I compare a lot to my neurotypical son and I can't even tell you, Rachel, how many times I say, use your inside voice to my neurotypical three-year-old. Like it's at least twice a day, at least. Um, and usually when I'm trying to talk to my husband, he will interject and it's it's quite a bit louder. And so I'm like, Oh, you're attention seeking. So like working through all of those things, it's not that different. Just like, um, so in the presentation, I mentioned this too, 
is that we like neurotypical people, we do forms of stimmy, right? We twirl our hair, we tap our foot. Um, I show a video of him kind of getting some sensation from this little lovey monkey that he has. Like we all do it. And so we kind of have to reshape our thoughts about how, how we shape it with the AC devices too. The last component of, of, this bucket of, of stimming on a device is the idea of echolalia and scripting. And what we know is that language development wise, toddlers use echolalia all the time. It's a form of processing. It's a form of learning chunks of language. Um, and I know I, I am not the best person. The best resource for this, in my opinion, is um, Alexandria uh, Zachos. She is a great SLP who has um, an Instagram and a site called Meaningful Speech. And she talks all about gestalt language processing and NLA stages and how you can really shape scripts and shape echolalia. So I just kind of briefly talk about it in my presentation, but she, she's a great resource for that. I think she says 75% or more of autistic individuals are considered gestalt language processors. And so thinking about that, it's a, it's a way that they're learning and how we can um, jump into it rather than detract from it and, and kind of take a different approach. Yeah. We're definitely going to have her on the podcast. I like have already sought her out <laughs> and I'm like, please come on, talk about Gestalt language processing. Um, so just like, definitely it's on my radar. Um, cause I want to do an entire episode dedicated to it. Cause I think it's so important. Um, and I think that the key here, when we're thinking about Gestalt language processing, for those of you guys listening who might not know what that is, um, it's basically the idea that, you know, language is learned in kind of chunked phrases. And we oftentimes say like scripting, right? That's like a very common thing um, that almost at this point feels synonymous with gestalt language processing. Um, but I feel like there's a negative connotation to scripting. It's like, oh, well, they're only scripting. They're just scripting for movies and songs. And, you know, the scripting typically has a function. Um, so it's our job to be kind of detectives to figure out what is the intention behind this phrase? Um, because oftentimes, again, it feels random. It feels like, what, is, what are they saying? Like, I don't understand. Um, but if we start kind of digging a little bit deeper, we can figure out what was the intent behind that, you know, phrase or that script. Um, and then we can figure out how to teach meaning behind it and to mitigate it or break it down and build it back up um, to show that, you know, when we manipulate words, like it changes the meaning. Um, so anyway, definitely like think that's a huge part of this too. Um, and I think that when it comes to I think that scripting is oftentimes synonymous with stimming. It's like, it, it feels like everyone kind of lumps it in the same category. Um, and I would say that a lot of times the script itself has some type of function behind it. So definitely trying to get to the bottom of what that is. It's not always easy. Um, and it takes a team approach. Typically, it's not like one person can typically figure this out. It, usually I loop parents in because parents are like, oh, they always say this when they're hurt. And I'm like, oh, okay. So like, let's like figure out how to like shape this so that we can, um, you know, so the child can be understood by all, right? Because um, they're not going to necessarily be understood if they're using a script to say that I'm hurt. Um, so anyway, I think it's a really interesting topic. And I think it's a really good thing to think about in the context of stimming. It all goes back to context, right? Like, so when, when she describes it, if she says, give me an example, is this, what did they actually mean? She's like, I don't know. I need the context. I need the language environment. I need what is going on. Um, what are their symbolic or pre-symbolic gestures telling us at that time? It's so, so important. I always tell people, what do they do after they, they activate the device? That is almost more important than what they've said. Like if you see joint engagement or if you see them returning to an activity, if you see them not returning to an activity, what is that really telling us? And what I love about the idea of echolalia and scripts is that it, it's base form. The, it means that the communication, the individual understands that something needs to be said. They understand the language con construct of, I need to say something like something language means something. I just don't know how to convey it to my communication partner. So we can, it's a skill that we can work with and shape. And so that's why I think um, it's, it's a really good skill that we don't need to extinguish with communication devices. It's just about reshaping that. Don't ignore it. Don't remove the device or interrupt the message, teach management strategies and shape it while promoting positive um, communication partner exchanges. And that can be done. Sometimes I do that with devices and sometimes I take it down to light tech and I do it in that capacity too, um, using the same symbol sets and using, you know, taking it down a little bit 
so that we're focusing on the actual exchange of what we're trying to get in the, in the moment of the activity we're doing. Let's like dive a little bit deeper into that. So you mean you're using some type of communication board or uh, like screenshot of maybe the homepage of a device as a way to focus on the language and maybe there's not the auditory output and the thing, the other things that are kind of happening, activating on the screen. Um, so is that what you're talking about? It's that, or sometimes I'll even um, utilize a, a mid-tech device. Like I might utilize a... Um, a step-by-step where I might utilize a Big Mac so that we can focus on a three-part exchange when we're doing a greeting. Um, Let's say it's for a functional job skill and I need to interact with somebody. And if the, and if they have the understanding of like, I need to say something, well, let's work on that. Like, what do I need to say in the context of this activity? Or if they're not quite there yet and they're saying something like trucks, um, they're, and they're perseverating on the idea of trucks. Okay. Well, let's, what does a truck do? Like, so a truck is going to go, well, you're saying, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a good script that somebody would say with, the, with, with truck. Um, like if they were watching a kid's show or something <laughs> and, uh, my kid, my toddler again, watches like gecko, the truck. So if they, if he scripted something from that and said, um, like gecko go in truck, like truck go in. And, and again, maybe that's with the device or maybe I break it down. So it's, it's not as overwhelming. Yeah. I like that idea because I think that <clears throat> sometimes the, it's like, it's hard to kind of manage when it, especially when a child's kind of like rapid fire, just like, you know, hitting the device and like hearing the words and activating the buttons. Um, so I like the idea of kind of transitioning to uh, a, a light tech type of version so that a child is able to focus more on the kind of symbol or the icon and the actual language behind it without all of the busyness. Um, that feels like a really good strategy that I actually haven't thought about before. So I like that. Um, and I think too, um, just thinking about the components of, of the function of the language and decreasing the amount of semantic, like busyness, like you said, is, is a big component of that is, um, you know, pragmatic function being like, am I working on a greeting? Like, let's focus on that. Am I working on, um, protesting? Like sometimes it's more about protesting for our kiddos who, are might again this is where it kind of goes into both buckets like they're trying to self-regulate because they're so worked up and they don't have a way to send that message or share that message with the communication partner how can we how can we shift that and just say something like go away so that i have power in communication um i i protested in an appropriate way and my message is is, um, shared with my communication partner where it gets tricky is for gestalt language processors we're often talking about somebody that's verbally scripting and so then it's this component of, well, what do we think they're trying to say when they're nonverbal or when they're when they're using a device? Um, so that's the part where, again, what do they do after they use the device? What are we getting from our environmental inventories, from our family members, from other staff? Like, where are we seeing that? And, and that's why it's, the collaborative approach is so helpful. Yeah, I just like, you just kind of blew my mind a little bit because I thought about like, So like you said, when we have Gestalt language processors, we typically know they're Gestalt language processors because they have verbal speech. But like, what about the Gestalt language processors who don't have verbal speech? And then we're kind of, we're, you know, building language step-by-step. That's so fascinating to me. We have to have Alexandria. Is Alexandria, is that her name? Yes. Yeah. We need to have her on. Alexandria, help us. (laughs) Well, I think she talked to Kate McLaughlin about it on Instagram a while back. So, you know, the AAC coach, Kate, like she would be a great resource too, but I think she would also defer to Alexandria um, in the sense that we know 75% of autistic individuals are Gestalt language processors. So safe assumption to make is that some of them are also nonverbal. And so we're using an analytic approach with a lot of our language software systems. Um, I just met with, I won't even throw out names, but I met with a company the other day and I was telling them it would be really beneficial um, with your approach and your language software if you considered looking and working with Alexandria because a lot of our systems right now are set up as analytical process for analytical processors but yet we know that a huge portion of the population we work with are autistic and so how should we (laughs) we need to be we need to also be offering supports for that as well. I completely agree because I think the current technology is just assuming that we have a lot of analytical language processors, which I think we know just from, you know, research that that probably is not true. Um, So how can we adapt the technology to help better support 
because um, I don't think it's super easy. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like I feel like we could go down rabbit holes. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to keep talking because I just feel like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> I'm just like my wheels are turning and I'm like, oh wow, like I'm so interesting to think about. Um, but yeah, we'll have to definitely have Alexander on. And um, I think it's really interesting all of the things to think about. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, just like recognizing what stimming looks like, I think is kind of the tech takeaway message and how can we shape it um, instead of focusing on trying to get rid of it or trying to stop it. And just to, I think, understanding that all of these things, there's intent and understanding what the intent really means other than just lumping it into stimming. Like when we lump it into stimming, um, we're not really getting at the root of of why it's there. And so then we're just trying these things at random that we mm -hmm. think is best because we've lumped it all into stimming. So if you see stimming um, as Sally Smith SLP, you might say, I'm just going to take it down and I'm going to hide all the vocabulary, or I'm going to ignore the behavior, or I'm going to remove the device when they, when they present with stimming like behaviors. And really stimming can mean so many things. Awesome. Are there any other like takeaway strategies or things when we're working with stimming that we should think about? I feel like we covered a lot in this interview. I just think that observation is, is my main take home. Um, the more you can observe, find observational checklists, and you're really looking at what the student or what the patient or what the individual is doing before, during, and after an activation or a stim-like behavior, perseveratory behavior, that is going to be your golden ticket to really figuring out how you need to shape it and um, and kind of redirect or redesign your activity. I think that's just generally good advice with the students that we work with, because I think that we so often focus on um, language or all these things. And there's so many subtleties and nuances um, that sometimes we don't even realize. Um, and so I think the skill of observing a student with complex communication needs is one that needs to be, you know, constantly revisited. Um, I think that we do that a lot in the assessment process. And then we like forget that like these things like are something that we should be doing all the time throughout our sessions um, because there's so many communication acts that happen that are nonverbal um, and a lot of times you can figure out intention um, and more information if you just kind of put on a detective hat and dig a little bit deeper. And so I think that that's a really important reminder for everyone to just, um, just sit back and observe. I also think it helps us, it helps guide our, you know, therapy for motivation. And if we just observe what a child is showing us, um, and build off of that, instead of, you know, coming in with all these targets and ideas about what to kind of, um, try to get the student to do for us. Um, we can oftentimes build off of what they're already showing us and have a lot more success and everybody's happier. I feel like. Right. I learned a long time ago that like I stopped planning so much for my therapy sessions because it half the time, if not more than half the time, you would throw it out the window and end up talking about trucks or talking about the butterfly that they found on the window, whatever that is. Like it's never what you have planned. Like you could have a beautiful craft activity, a beautiful game that you've set up. No, they're going to, they're going to go for the butterfly every time. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So I have those, I have some observational sheets. Um, if you go to the presentation page on AAC in the cloud, there is a website there that has a lot of citations. If you do want to go down the rabbit hole, you can go down into the research of, of echolalia and stimming. Um, but it also has observational sheets. And then it also has some video examples that, that are all kind of right in line with the presentation. Love it, Laura. Where can people find you? I love this interview. You have so many gems of wisdom to share. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? So I would say the best way is, um, as I told you this summer, I did start an Instagram. So if you want, you can reach out to me on Instagram. It's AAC innovations. And, um, if, and I can share my email with you guys too, and you can put that in the notes and people can get a hold of me. It's, um, AAC innovations one at gmail.com. Amazing. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. Laura, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your insight. Um, I like remember exactly what I was doing when I started listening to your presentation and I was like, Ooh, this is good. <laughs> I, uh, think I, I think I messaged you that day. <laughs> I was like, please come on the podcast. Like you're amazing. <laughs> oh, it's been a blast, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. So for talking with tech, I'm Rachel Madel joined by Laura Hayes. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will talk to you guys next week.